a lot of the good work between Americans and Pakistanis can actually happen outside of governments, um, in the advocacy space, in the educational exchanges space, in the nonprofit space. You know, the uh, Pakistan sends the highest number of Fulbright scholars to the United States than any other country. So we've already, the Americans have done quite a service to Pakistan in terms of educating the number of masters and PhD um, recipients. Welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Francis Ely and today I'm joined by my co-hosts Cameron Brown and Sam Coe. For over 70 years, the United States and Pakistan have navigated a challenging yet productive security relationship. While it has not always been smooth sailing, Pakistan has been and remains a critical strategic partner in a turbulent region for the United States. What is the nature of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship? How can this strategic partnership be strengthened? And how will the United States respond to China's rise in the region? To answer these questions and more, today we're joined by Shamila Shodri. Shamila N. Shodri is an international affairs analyst specializing in U.S. foreign policy with a focus on South Asia. She currently is the president of the American Pakistan Foundation, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center and a senior fellow at New America. Ms. Shodri worked for over a decade in the U.S. government, including at the White House as director for Pakistan and Afghanistan on the National Security Council from 2010 to 2011. She also served in the U.S. Department of State's policy planning staff as South Asia advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the late Ambassador Richard Holbrook. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right. Thank you for joining us today, Ms. Chaudhry. Thank you for having me. Now, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship has come deeper into the spotlight after the 9-11 attacks due to the country's strategic proximity to Afghanistan. However, as we know, this was by no means the start of the United States' relationship with Pakistan. So to start us off, do you mind giving our listeners a brief synopsis of the pre-9-11 U.S.-Pakistan relationship? Or on what was it building and were there any challenges back then? Yeah, no, I, um, friends, I think that's a great question. Um, it's hard to imagine... Um, what the relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan looked like before 9-11, because 9-11 was such a consuming kind of uh, event in um, global history, uh, but also for these two countries. It really pulled them into a new kind of orbit of cooperation. So, But before 9-11, there was a lot of um, interesting cooperation um, for other reasons between the two countries. Um, In fact, like when Pakistan was became a country in 1947, the United States was one of the first um, countries to acknowledge its establishment and, and the formation of the country. So that in itself, I think, is quite significant. And um, it, it, what what that signaled at the time was a strategic interest on the part of the United States in this part of the world, in, in the South Asia region, but then also in the geographic space that Pakistan, the new state of Pakistan came to assume. Um, historically, that that, um, you know, th- that geographical space uh, in between kind of the Indian subcontinent and then the what we now know as Afghanistan was always viewed as a buffer. Um, the British, when they were in India, looked at present-day Pakistan um, as a buffer to prevent Russian encroachment, right? And so um, the world was always looking at this 
parcel of land, if you will, very strategically. And so after the creation of Pakistan, the United States um, in the Cold War context was very much seized with the idea of building an alliance with a variety of countries, Muslim countries, um, notably um, Pakistan was one of them um, as part of this um, you know, cold, growing Cold War with um, the Soviet Union. And so Pakistan benefited a lot from US um, patronage namely in the form of um, security assistance. So some similarities to post 9-11, but the, the rhetoric and the dynamic of the relationship was much more um, collaborative and positive. And I think for, on the part of Pakistan, it was uh, such a weak and young nation that it was um, very grateful to have the support of the Americans. And, um, you know, the geopolitics were still there. There was always, there was still an India to deal with. and competition between India and Pakistan. There were still, you know, politics in the Middle East that were informing Pakistan's national identity. But regardless of all of that, the U.S. and Pakistan did have this very close um, security alliance. Then when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan later, at the, you know, towards the end of the Cold War, um, that brought the U.S.-Pakistan relationship into a new um, phase of cooperation, still focused very much on security, but um, uh, was more of um, kind of was more tactical, meaning the U.S. was looking for Pakistan's cooperation in actually, um, you know, supporting fighters on the ground um, in Afghanistan to defeat the Soviets. So this was a this was a different kind of security cooperation that um, exposed Pakistan um, to the more intimate kind of conflict, uh, it, to the conflict in Afghanistan in a more intimate way. Um, and I think effectively it set a foundation for the future, which um, explains some of the conflict we, we we're seeing post 9-11, um, because Pakistan then during, during the um, Soviet invasion and the cooperation with the U.S. during the 70s and the 80s, that is when Pakistan started to develop closer relationships with groups that eventually became the Taliban, with different militant groups that eventually became anti-India and were being used by the Pakistani military in Kashmir. And so, you know, in some ways, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship enabled those closer relationships with um, with actors and groups that the U.S. now considers unsavory. And um, and so the, this history of close cooperation um, kind of set both countries up to easily work together after 9-11, but with a lot of historical baggage that was unresolved. So as you emphasized about Pakistan's important strategic partnership with the United States, Ms. Chaudhry, I was wondering if you could also look into the role that the United States needed from Pakistan during Operation Enduring Freedom. Mm-hmm. How was Pakistan in a instrumental partner for coalition forces in Afghanistan, especially early on? Yeah. So again, this is a, it's a great question where geography comes into play quite prominently. Um, uh, After 9-11, the United States needed a way to respond, um, you know, quickly, tactically, um, with kind of um, strong logistics on the ground to any kind of terrorist threats in Afghanistan. And with limited, with a limited presence in the region, the U.S. military um, had to find states that would cooperate with it. Um, And in other parts of the world, the United States has a much more significant military presence in the form of 
military bases, or in some countries, they're called American presence posts. And in South Asia, there were none. And typically, when there's um, no formal presence like that, a lot of the, cl the collaboration that happens, happens is um, between the intelligence agencies, and, it, and it's in the covert space. And Fortunately for the U.S. and Pakistan, they had the intelligence agencies had a history of cooperation um, from the Cold War, as I mentioned. And so right after 9-11, the U.S. really leaned on Pakistan um, because, you know, for those um, intelligence networks and ties um, that the Pakistanis had on the ground in Afghanistan, but also um, for just the basic um, logistic and transport routes that were required for the U.S. to send weapons and material um, and, and um, just, you know, basic um, things for their troops that were being posted in Afghanistan. All of that stuff had to go through some kind of ground and air um, routes. And the ones, um, you know, offered by Pakistan were the most efficient in terms of time and cost. Um, the other options simply didn't pan out for a variety of political and economic reasons. And so um, at, the, at the beginning of the operation, um, in the first kind of year or two, I would say about 75% of all U.S. material going into Afghanistan went through Pakistan. So imagine, um, you know, the, 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 imagine the level of collaboration or at least like agreement required to, to have um, material kind of shipped on um, containers by sea to ports in Pakistan and then put onto trucks um, and then the containers were driven up through um, you know the deserts of Pakistan to the border of Afghanistan at the various passes that they have um, uh, on on that border so it, it takes quite a bit of um, you know logistics and, and and understanding between countries to enable this. Um, but, uh, you know, it, in the beginning, I think it worked really well because there was a very clear understanding and set of expectations um, and it remained in the covert space. And um, it, it was, uh, you know, it, I, and I think it was comfortable in that space. And we can talk more about kind of how it evolved and became more problematic. But um, if, you know, to, just to summarize, the two things that Pakistan was really instrumental in, in helping the U.S. in the war in Afghanistan was one on logistics and two on um, kind of the ability of the U.S. to move around and collect intelligence and um, conduct certain counterterrorism activities in the covert space. Oh, yes, that would be great if, we, if I could take you up on that offer. What sort of variables entered this, albeit imperfect, relationship between the United States and Pakistan? And why did it seem like Pakistan was providing a safe haven for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters? Or was that the case? Well, the, um, for starters, you know, again, we go back to geography. The border between Afghanistan and Pakistan is um, not, a, a, you know, not a tightly um, held border. It's very porous um, for a variety of reasons. One is that um, the communities that live on both sides um, are connected to each other, they're, they're kin, they also are part of, you know, formal and informal economic networks, um, family members on one side have moved to the other and, and they're, you know, they're still connected in other ways through marriage. And, and so the, there's some organic relationships at play that keep the border, um, you know, the way that it is free flowing um, and not highly um, monitored or heavily securitized, at least in the past. 
And also because, you know, it, it, it has been this way, this border has been this way because there is quite a bit of um, illegal activity and the economic side of things that happens that, um, you know, variety of stakeholders have interest in. So it could be either, you know, people affiliated with governments on both sides or local leaders, businesses who, you know, benefit from having uh, a, a border that's not that um, heavily monitored. And so when the 9-11 attacks happened, this created um, some tensions there. So that that's one thing to keep in mind that that's part of the backdrop of this. Um, and then I would say that the United States um, had an expectation that Pakistan would just be very aggressive in um, uh, in pursuing um, the Taliban and um, and Al Qaeda, and I think the mistake there was to just lump the two of the groups into the same category, like in the American mind. It, and I think some of it was just subconscious, like it was not a deliberate thing. It's something. It's something that we didn't think through fully until later that the threat was. Um, uh, there, there were multiple layers of the threat and um, different degrees and different relationships with those organizations. Now, Pakistan has been, uh, you know, closely aligned with the, the Afghan Taliban since the um, anti-Soviet, you know, jihad, which the U.S. supported. So we, you know, we as a country, as in our government, if you're an American, you're, our government has supported the relationship between Pakistan and Afghan Taliban when it's been beneficial to us. And that was a strategic decision we made. Now those relationships continued when we, um, when we, uh, the Cold War ended and we shifted, um, the United States shifted its attention elsewhere. So the relationships continued. And then when 9-11 happened, that relationship that the Pakistanis had with the Afghan Taliban, it eventually came under greater scrutiny from, um, the American side, when we saw that there are these closer links between the Taliban and Al Qaeda, then we, you know, as we learn more about those dynamics, we realize like we can't just focus on Al Qaeda. There are aspects of the Taliban that are supporting Al Qaeda. They enable them to to do what they can, you know, the, the Afghan Taliban enabled Al Qaeda on the ground. That's the only way that Al Qaeda could have done what they've done in Afghanistan is through, you know, like marrying locals and giving money to local power brokers. And, and so I think the U.S.-Pakistan relationship really suffered from a lot of those, um, you know, the things that were left behind after the Cold War ended. Um, and so to, to your point, though, you know, did Pakistan give safe haven to the Taliban and, and, um, and assist them? I mean, there's, there's plenty of documentation by investigative journalists that um, talks about this, that um, you know, after the U.S. Um, went into Afghanistan with um, the operations, when the operation started, um, there is news, there is reporting um, documenting um, Pakistani intelligence and military, um, you know, facilitating um, Taliban leaders to go into Pakistan. Now, the Pakistanis will never admit that publicly. And I don't think the U.S. has ever confirmed that publicly either. But it's something that's kind of part of the, the culture of these topics. Um, uh, it's both known and unknown. This is a really important point. I want to I emphasize this, that by design, we're not, um, you know, the those of us who worked on these issues, like on the government side, by design, like we're not always enabled to talk about it and acknowledge it because so much of the work is happening in the covert space. And 
it's not spoken of. And then, you know, we're, we're also being very focused and tactical. Like we just, we, we want X, Y, and Z from the Pakistanis. And if they give this to us, we'll look the other way on some of these things for a while until it becomes really, really inconvenient. And I think that's how we approached it with their relationship with the Taliban. There was a shift, I will say, between 2006 and 2008 when the the Pakistanis, I think, realized the United States was not um, going to stick around or they were an unreliable partner in their minds. And so the Pakistanis started shifting and being more kind of um, aggressive in their um, kind of leaning towards the Taliban and that you, the U.S. didn't like it. And that's when you, we saw things start to go sour. And at the same time, in parallel to that souring of U.S. Pakistan ties, Al-Qaeda and the Afghan Taliban started to, it, things started to get blurry. The lines between them started to get blurry. And we have the emergence of the Pakistani Taliban, which is also being aided and abetted by the Afghan Taliban, by Al-Qaeda. And that I would say that was really the the beginning of the end for this quote unquote partnership um, was the proliferation of these non-state actors, non-state militant actors. Um, it just things got really out of hand and it became unmanageable also because most of this relationship was in the covert space until the Obama administration started. And then there was much more public profile and veneer at least added to the cooperation. Let me stop there. Yeah. So as you so uh, vividly painted for us, uh, the both the Bush administration and the Obama administration had imperfect and nuanced relationships with Pakistan, especially after 9-11 due to the nature of its geography and obviously the past relationships, which you just discussed with us. How did the Trump administration approach the U.S.-Pakistan relationship? How was it different? Were there any improvements in the relationship or was it more of the same? So I get this question a lot. And what I like to do is just start from the the beginning and say, you know, we acknowledge what happened in 9-11. We we meaning observers. We we saw what happened. The U.S. acted. There was a very uh, robust kind of one-on-one engagement between President Bush and Musharraf. And the intelligence agencies had a lot of cooperation. And some American diplomats call it the best cooperation in the world at that time for U.S. interests. Okay, so that we had that. As it progressed into the Obama administration, things got really complicated, as we were talking about. And the Obama administration did, I think, exactly what it should have done, which was we have to we had to try to think about it strategically and comprehensively. And so that's when we saw the strategic dialogue emerge. There was focus on energy and development and education and the diaspora, all kinds of things, which ultimately became too much for the bureaucracy to um, accommodate. Um, and also the two countries were not used to working on a lot of those issues together. So there, you know, if we work on them for like the next 20 years, we might get there. But this was really for the sake of the counterterrorism cooperation. And so it faltered. And it became much more minimal towards the end of the Obama administration. That's when we saw the money start to kind of, we, we started, the U.S. started to chip away at that, those big pots of money and give less and less, um, holding Pakistan accountable to kind of delivering on certain things and on the security side, um, on security issues. Then when Trump came in, actually, it was, you just have, I see it as a continuation of that gradual like leveling of the relationship. It was, I, I, I saw it as very organic, just as I saw Obama's 
kind of policy as a very organic output of what the Bush administration tried to do. And so it's not like the Trump administration brought anything new to the table. I think they were given a gift in some respects that this is a relationship that's already been leveled. And now you are, and then the U.S. was actually able to focus on it for what they needed Pakistan for in the moment without any of the other frills, which had become distractions at that point. So without having to focus on development or in, in a big way, I mean, we still have those things happening, but not high, in a big high profile way. And so the, what the Trump administration did was basically center the relationship between President Trump and Prime Minister Imran Khan and, and um you know, they had conversations at the highest levels. Um, they continued to take funding away from Pakistan during that time, but they really centered it on the question of the peace process and Afghanistan. That was, I think, the the major kind of outcome during the Trump administration, which we should, um, you know, be thankful for. It wouldn't have been possible, though, if the Obama administration hadn't socialized um, the issue of talking to the Taliban in the way that it did. And I think that that was one of the hardest things we worked on. And because people just were like, the, the Taliban are evil, or they, you know, we don't know who they are, they're a threat. And it, you know, we had gotten qu quite emotional and rightfully so, but I think the Trump administration, then we had given them this gift, essentially, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to fight with the bureaucracy or each other about, are the Taliban bad or good? It's like, well, that's, that's a separate discussion, but we still have to do what we have to do. We have to figure out what reconciliation means to us, and then we have to leave. So so that brings us to the present day, which I know you want to talk about, but we, you know, I sort of see this all as very organic um, because it's an issue, and I'll stop here. The, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, in, in fact, is it's quite similar, like it, it's quite consistent um, across the different administrations in that um, there's no new ideas, there's no, there's no big new options um, or choices that are available. Um, there's always more or less that you can add to it, but it's just, it, there, there's a consistency that we don't acknowledge. I think it's important to acknowledge. And if we did, we would be like, okay, so this is actually like there's a lot underpinning this relationship over the years, and we, we we can actually be much more constructive than we're allowing ourselves to be. And instead, we get bogged down with the politics of things and of the day to day. Yes, um, we were actually we wanted to actually move on to the to the to the current world, the current state of the relationship, because some very interesting things have been developing over the last couple of weeks. For example, the Biden administration announced that it would. It would be fully withdrawn from Afghanistan by the end of the year. Additionally, we are seeing U.S.-India relationship becoming increasingly stronger through the development and the strengthening of the Quad. And how, I want to know how have these developments started to affect this consistency in the U.S.-Pakistan relationship that we've been seeing for for decades? How have the return of, of this sort of great power competition affected the relationship? Well, it's, you know, I, I think great power, great power competition is, um, you know, it's, it's a, a new, it's a new kind of word configuration to describe like what has been happening in the world, like 
for as long as we've been analyzing foreign affairs. So it's it's not something that's new to the world, but it is something that's new for the United States in the current kind of context of things, because we haven't been able to focus on great power competition, given our, um, you know, given that we were consumed with like fighting global terrorism for how many years, right? So I think now that we've reshifted our framing of global affairs under this construct, Pakistan is actually getting a little bit, it's not a little bit, it's just getting ignored um, as an entity. And um, that I think is really problematic. So um, in in thinking through like what great power competition means to the US and the importance of India and other Asian partners like Japan, and then you know, you know, the Asia Pacific and Australia, like that's all super important. I'm so glad that we've um, embraced that framing because it's, it's good for the United States to show the world that good things can come out of democracies working together and democracies are imperfect. So we don't expect them to be perfect democracies in order to work with each other. However, it ex- it's excludes so many other countries and issues that are related to it. So for example, like we're not looking at Pakistan as kind of this um, uh, as part of a global climate change conversation. We're not looking at Pakistan as part of a global, um, you know, tech and policy and, um, you know, venture capitalism conversation. And that's a very dynamic space in the country and involves lots of other communities outside of Pakistan um, and could be very um, interesting for the U.S. to, you know, maybe focus more on. And think about Pakistan like more regionally or globally. And it's just not happening because we don't have the intellectual bandwidth um, or kind of mental space because there's so much other, th- there are so many other things for us to focus on. And we've really centered our, uh, the United States have re- has really centered its entire like global outlook uh, in opposition to China. Um, and it, it's, it's ironic to me because there's so many ways that we're connected to China that we like, we're not able to, extract ourselves from China as like our country ourself. And so when we go to the rest of the world and we attempt to do this, it, you know, this, our messages kind of fall flat on these countries because in fact, they need China more, you know, they, they need China just as much as we need China. So I just think it's really interesting that, um, you know, being now that we're actually like looking at global issues and global competition and, and not being distracted by terrorism, um, we're we're still not incorporating an outlook on certain countries. Like we're still looking at certain countries within this narrow terrorism or security framework. Um, when we really should be applying it to a lot more, um, uh, you know, a lot more states and, and communities around the world. I don't think it does us any good to to ignore kind of developments like in Pakistan, for example, on climate change, climate activism. There's a lot of um, you know, very challenging human rights issues happening there. But at the same time, these communities are connected with global advocacy groups and communities. And we just don't have any insight into that because we're, you know, as a government, we've deemed that it's not the top priority right now. At some point, these issues will come up and they'll be important for us to to focus on. I want to to delve deeper exactly into what you're talking about, this, this future relationship between the United States and Pakistan, giving Given the foreign the foreign affairs developments that we've seen over the last five years or so, we have in the United States increasingly seeing the world as the United States versus China. We have the United States as a result 
strengthening the relationship with India, who does not get along with Pakistan. And we also are starting to see Pakistan being ignored, as you said, um, when it comes to US foreign policy making. I, my question to you then would be, what can the United States do to, to meaningfully engage with Pakistan, giving these, I guess, contradicting like policy uh, topics, given that we're both strengthening our relationship with India, while Pakistan is strengthening the relationship with pa with India with China. My apologies. Yeah. And and yeah. like, how can we reconcile this? Well, I think you know some of this is it's quite esoteric, unfortunately. And so policymakers, when you get into that, it, it's like a little bit more existential, esoteric. It just kind of goes over our heads. But um, one, you know, again, it has to do with the framing. What, you know, the United States can't be looking at the world as, uh, you know, as partnerships around the world as zero sum, right? It, it, we, we can't expect Pakistan to pick between China and the U.S. Um, or really, we, we can't expect Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan may think that it's it's chosen between India and China, but that's not a choice, right? They, they can't choose to not be neighbors with India, for example, and then just be, you know, closely aligned with China and 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 in hopes of of hedging India in. But to what end, right? So these aren't actually choices or sides or um, or you know these are artificial constructs. I think. And so one, I think one thing that's really problematic for us as a as the United States moving into the future is to like is that we are still very much guided by these these constructs. And so dismantling them is really important. I, I think things like the quad help dismantle that actually to just to be fair, like we've, you know, creating um, regional groupings and multilateral conversations, even though they may not um, be um, action for enforcing all the time, they, I think it's still very important because people um, need to see the US as, you know, a global actor and not just a global kind of um, demander or like a global voice, right? We have to be a p active participant. So that's one thing. It's like not expecting these countries to like make choices between one side or the other, unless we're willing to actually um, fill in the gaps that um, other countries are filling in, right? So the Chinese are, are giving quite a bit to Pakistan and it's not a new thing. It's just more visible now. They've had a very long relationship. It's always been very much in the private space. And as China's um, interests globally have evolved everywhere, but including in Pakistan, and we've seen it, it's more visible. And I think that's, I, I think just the the visibility of greater partnership, but the lack of knowledge about it is worrisome for, for American policymakers. And it, it should be. I mean, we have a right to, to be interested in that and concerned. I think what we need to work on moving forward is figuring out how we then make ourselves relevant if we want to actually compete with China in those in countries like Pakistan. I, but friends, I'm not sure that we do. I'm not sure that we're saying we want to compete with China. We just don't like what they're doing some of the time. Right. And that, so that's not really a policy. That's not really a strategy. And so rather than, I think, thinking in opposition, it's it's worth the United States spending some time to think through, well, what are the things that we care about in Pakistan that affect U.S. interests or that could affect them in the future for good, for better or for worse? Right now, we're really only thinking of how do we get out of Afghanistan and how can we prevent 
security collapse in the region after we leave. And we need Pakistan for that. Of course we do. But imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine if like President Biden had come into office and Imran Khan was one of the first people he called. It doesn't have to be the like even top 10, but it just in the first few months. He sh- Imran Khan should have been one of the first people he called, not because Imran Khan is such a great leader. He's very he's riddled with problems and he's quite weak in, in many respects. But the U.S. knew at the time and we've known for a while that we're going to need Pakistan for logistics, for the ability to go in and, and per- maybe strike, do strikes to collect intelligence. We've we've known this for decades because we've been relying on them for that. So why is it that we are not tactically doing the things that will enable us to pursue our interests? I, th- to me, that's just um, like, I, like I was saying, it's just ignoring it until you need to do it. And so now you've seen like however many months into the administration, there's much more attention being focused on Pakistan. But again, it's like, I don't know that it needed to happen this way. We've been working with this country since 1947 it's an uncomfortable relationship, but it's one that we need. So there, there seems to have been like just as much as the Pakistanis have gotten quite emotional with us about us abandoning them. I think we still have it in our minds. Many of us who worked on these difficult issues, myself included, that we can't trust them and that we want to um, at every chance we can get, we want to use um, what w- might help Pakistan as an incentive, right? As a carrot or a stick. And this, again, this is just not a constructive or mature way to conduct a relationship. And there's so many good people working on the on this um, region um, in the in the government who have lots of experience. So it's not for lack of knowing. I think there's um, lots and lots of other things that are um, consuming the attention of the administration. Um, of course, obviously the pandemic and having to deal with things at home. So, um, but I just, you know, I just think that we can't um, say don't partner with China, but then we're also not going to think, you know, carefully and nuanced in a nuanced way about how we can help the, you know, any country and in this case, Pakistan. So given all that, uh, what is your prognosis for the United States-Pakistan relationship going forward? You cited the Afghanistan withdrawal and, um, you know, pa- Pakistan, you know, Pakistan's uh, pursuit of a better relationship with China. It, do you expect it to continue to devolve? Do you expect it to maybe emerge into something different? Um, and should we expect Pakistan to continue better relationships with China? Yeah, it, like I said, the relationship with China and Pakistan is, it, it, you know, it's it runs deep. Um, it, you know, they, they've been, um, military partners for a long time and now they're, they're in this economic partnership space. And that's a, that's a space where Pakistan needs quite a bit of help. And the Chinese, I think are willing to accommodate, um, because it's a, it's low risk, low, low cost for them actually. So we can expect that to continue. It doesn't mean that the Pakistanis have, um, you know, a hundred percent approval or preference for China over other partners. Um, they they're very much still keen to engage um, their European partners. They, and they have strong ties with US, EU countries, like on trade, for example, and also with the United States. Um, so I, I think you can expect P- 
Pakistan to continue to try to find its way on foreign policy. It's never really been its strong suit. Um, and we, we have observed that um, they're, they're trying, the government in Pakistan is trying to make a shift from being you know, too focused on geopolitics to geoeconomics. I mean, I think the words sound really good together, um, but it, it, in practice, there's quite a bit of work to be done in Pakistan um, to make it an attractive kind of haven for um, economic prosperity for for other you know countries and and so there's good there, but there's good work to be done there and so rather than kind of predict where the relationship is going because I think you know it's I've worked on this long enough to know not to make predict predictions but I I I think that um, a lot of the good work between Americans and Pakistanis can actually happen outside of governments. Um, in the advocacy space, in the educational exchanges space, in the nonprofit space, you know, the uh, Pakistan sends the highest number of Fulbright scholars to the United States than any other country. So we've already the Americans have done quite a service to Pakistan in terms of educating the number of masters and PhD um, recipients, um, who many of them go back to Pakistan to teach. And so that's a wonderful thing to continue. Um, and same, same goes with kind of profiling Americans who go back to Pakistan to invest and, and, and you know, get involved in the startup space. But all of this is outside of government. It doesn't depend on like overt government involvement or U.S. policy changes, um, with the exception of a few things. Like there's a travel advisory, um, which can be problematic from time to time. I think it's quite reasonable right now. Um, that being said, you know, the Pakistanis will say, oh, it creates, you know, the, the travel advisory makes it still seem like we're in the throes of post 9-11 and things have gotten better in Pakistan. And they have. But, you know, these are all things, there, there are some things that the governments will need to work out and sort out. Um, they'll continue to work on security issues because of geography and kind of the different countries involved. The U.S. will be pulled into Pakistan, whether it likes, wants to or likes it or not. Um, it's a necessity for us, whether and, and we've got to come to kind of accept that reality and also just acknowledge that a lot of good work can be done. It, it may not be between the governments entirely. And so as much as governments can enable and support um, and send goodwill to those working on Pakistan on the outside, I think that would be very much welcome. Well, Ms. Chaudhry, thank you very much for joining us and providing such a such an insightful view into this very nuanced relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan and, and why the United States should continue to cultivate this relationship going forward as well. Thank you so much. And, and I really appreciated um, your thoughtful questions and, and um, it, it was great great talking to you about this. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hope you enjoyed it. We'd like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF and Gorey Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok for latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.